Good morning, everybody. So good to see everybody here. Welcome. If you're new with us, thank you for joining us this morning. And I uh, hope you fill out a connection card so we can know who you are. And uh, yeah, praise God. Praise God that we get to be together. I'm thankful the Petersons are here with us this morning. Look forward to hearing more from you guys after the service. Um, and then also wanted to celebrate. We had two baptisms this morning also, uh, which was, was awesome. We sent an email out about that this week. But uh, it was, it was, uh, we met over at the Stanwood Swim and Fitness this morning, the two, two baptisms, baptized um, Connie Squires. Connie, can you raise your hand? Okay, there's Connie. And uh, I don't know if Alon is in here or not. Is Alon in here? Alon, right here. Raise that hand, Alon. That's right. Alon, yeah. So thankful for both of you guys. Thankful that uh, you're part of our church family. And church family, please uh, give them a hug, pat on the back, congratulate them this morning after the service. Praise God for his work uh, among us, and we have so much to be thankful for. Um, We've been going through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, and uh, the book of Acts is, it's a book in the New Testament, it takes place right after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it kind of talks about what happened to Jesus' followers after Jesus went back to heaven. And as we've been going through this, one of the recurring themes has been that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is for all different types of people, both in our societies and all different types of people around the world. There is no race or nationality or social class. There is no clique that does not need Jesus. Okay? And this is why Jesus told us right before he went into, uh, ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if, if you're not brushed up your ancient uh, geography, just so you know, those are kind of concentric circles. So it's in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and so that has been um, our mission uh, for 2,000 years as Christian and as Christians, and as we do that, as we witness to the world about uh, Jesus's uh, life and death and resurrection, we must be crystal clear that God saves. He he gives people eternal life. He rescues us from eternal hell. He reconciles us to Himself in friendship. He does all of this because of His grace. Grace is a very important word for Christians. Salvation in Jesus is a gift. So that's what grace means. It's a gift to God, or sorry, to us from God. And, and there's nothing that we have done, there's nothing we can do to, to save ourselves from, from the guilt of our sin and from um, hell and from Satan. We're saved only because of what Jesus did, God the Son did for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And we get to take part in that. We get to be participants in that. We get to be united to Jesus through faith only, only because God graciously invites us to. And God rescues people like you and me because he's full of grace. And because he is abounding in love, period. And um, even though many of us 
Christians agree that God is gracious, we're tempted to live in a way that says that we don't believe that God is gracious. We're tempted to live in a way that says that God's grace isn't enough to save me. We, 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 we feel like we must do things to make God love us more. We must uh, do something to, to maintain God's approval of us or to counterbalance our past sins and our present sins. We've got to do stuff. But the reality is we cannot make God love us more. We cannot balance God's scales and convince him that we've done more good things than bad things. And so he must love us. He must accept us. Yes, the message of the New Testament is, yes, do good works for the glory of God. Yes, uh, be transformed into the image of Jesus by killing uh, sinful behaviors in your life and by enjoying God more. But do those things because you love God. Do those things because you want to worship Jesus for what he's done for you. You want to obey him. For Christians, the good works that we do for the glory of God's name are an evidence that God has already given us eternal life. Our good works are not a currency that we use to buy salvation from God. And last Sunday, we we read about how the, the first Christians, after Jesus ascended into heaven, were spreading this message. It's the exact same message you've heard this morning. Uh, the, the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ to all different types of people in the ancient world. And specifically, we saw how a, a Christian man named Philip shared the gospel with a group of people that many people despised. This, this group was the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, they had um, entrenched themselves in sorcery, and idolatry, they were uh, syncretistic in that they had combined Judaism with pagan religions. A lot of people hated the Samaritans. But when Philip preached the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of God's grace to the Samaritans, many of them, it says, in that crowd, trusted in Jesus and received eternal life. And that's where we ended last week, but everything was not as hunky-dory as it appeared to be at that point. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to pick up there, and uh, you can turn with me to Acts 8.4. Before we read today's passage, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you through song and prayer and giving our offerings and through preaching and through fellowship. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word now, which we get to read. Thank you that it's in our language, uh, which it's it's not in everybody's language in our world. Um, We thank you for telling us the truth in your word. And we ask that you would use your word to feed our souls and to change our lives. Holy Spirit, please uh, just help us. We need your help. We can't do anything apart from you. We ask that you would minister to us with, with great power now. And we pray that you would save the lost and that you would sharpen the saved. Please protect us from evil. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts 8, 4. Through verse 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them yet. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So last Sunday we focused on verses 1 to 13, and this morning we're going to focus on verses 14 to 25 here. Um, as, as Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritans, it says that essentially a revival broke out among them, right? The, the Holy Spirit was working powerfully among them. He granted faith and repentance to many of the Samaritans, at the same time, it says many of them, uh, it looks almost like all of them trusted in the gospel of Jesus. And then at some point, word got back to the apostles in Jerusalem that the Samaritans had heard the gospel, they'd accepted the gospel. And so the apostles sent Peter and John on, on, on behalf of all of them to the city of Samaria in order to usher in the fullness of the Holy Spirit among the Samaritans. And verses 15 to 17 say that uh, since the Holy Spirit had not fallen on the, the Samaritan Christians yet, like he had fallen on the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, Peter and John prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They, uh, Peter and John, they, they laid their hands on the Samaritans in prayer, and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world was going on here? Well, this is essentially the Samaritan Pentecost. Okay. This will make more sense if we look back at what's already happened earlier to the Jewish Christians. Remember in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, 
the Jewish Christians were all gathered together, and they were all devoting themselves to prayer together. And it was then that the Holy Spirit fell on them. And at that moment, the, the Holy Spirit uh, was no longer uh, a visitor to them. He didn't just visit his people. The Holy Spirit now entered into and permanently indwelt Christians. And now in Acts 8, as, as Peter and John lay hands on the Samaritans and pray for them, the Holy Spirit enters the Samaritan Christians to permanently live inside of them too. Now, the, the Holy Spirit had already made these Samaritan Christians born again. But the Holy Spirit had not yet indwelt them. They, they, he was not indwelling the Samaritan Christians yet. Uh, it, this, this Samaritan Pentecost here inaugurated a new age of God living inside Samaritan Christians. And as the gospel message continued to spread, what we're going to see in Acts is that another Pentecost event, uh, like uh, another Pentecost-like event happens in chapter 10, when Gentiles hear the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And that inaugurates a new age of God living inside Gentile Christians. And so, so let's review that. As God advanced his kingdom throughout the ancient world, the Holy Spirit first fell upon and indwelt Jewish Christians in Acts 2. Then in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit fell upon and indwelt Samaritan Christians who were half Jewish, half Gentile. And then in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit fell upon and indwelt the Gentile Christians. Now, specifically regarding this Samaritan Pentecost, it, it was important for Peter and John as representatives of the apostles, to be with the Samaritans when the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. Because, uh, remember at this point, the 12 apostles, they were still alive. And because Christianity was, was built upon the authoritative teaching of the apostles, Peter and John's presence with the Samaritans validated that the Samaritans were truly part of the body of Christ. And this was very important. Peter and John were confirming that Philip's gospel was the same gospel that the apostles had been preaching in Jerusalem. And this Holy Spirit now indwelling the Samaritan Christians was the same Holy Spirit indwelling the Jewish Christians. And also, Peter and John's presence with the Samaritans, it, it had a unifying effect among all of the Christians. The Christians. Remember that as people groups, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Okay? Well, now that Jesus had died for all people groups, now that he sent his disciples to make disciples of all people groups, now that the same Holy Spirit was indwelling both Jewish and Samaritan Christians, there was no more reason for division. This was major. The Messiah had come. He was the same Messiah for both the Jews and the Samaritans. Their, their arguments about the proper location of the temple was null and void now because Jesus was their temple now. And, the, and their arguments about which books belong in Scripture and which books don't were null and void because now they both submitted to Jesus and what he taught about Scripture. And they submitted to the teaching of the apostles so God the Holy Spirit waited to fill the Samaritan Christians until Peter and John were with them 
so that they could confirm that they were preaching the same gospel, they were trusting in the same Savior, they were indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, and they were now part of the same family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus brings together and unites people from all races and people groups on earth. If today's passage were the only passage in the New Testament that spoke to the issue of racial reconciliation in Jesus Christ, then God could not make it much clearer to us that there is no place for racism or elitism among Christians. Racial reconciliation in Jesus does not mean that we should try to pretend uh, that races and different cultures don't exist. Rather, we should celebrate that the gospel is for all races, all cultures, all peoples. We should celebrate that the Holy Spirit is working all around the world in Christians and in churches that embody a diversity of cultures. Just like we've heard about this morning happened in, in North uh, West Africa. Northwest Africa, right? Yep. Racial reconciliation in Jesus Christ also means this that it is good and blessed for Christians of different races to marry each other. In, in fact, interracial Christian marriage is a beautiful picture of the harmony and unity of all people groups of the earth that we share in Christ. Uh, now listen closely. According to the Bible, according to 2 Corinthians 6, what makes couples unequally yoked is not their different races, it is their different faiths. And so if you're a single Christian looking for a future spouse, God will, and if, if it's in God's will for you to be married someday, then you need to make your top criteria for a future spouse to be someone who loves Jesus, who is following Jesus, and who wants to raise kids, if God gives you kids, who love and follow Jesus. A, a mutual commitment in marriage to love and obey Jesus Christ is the most important part of a marriage. And if you're a Christian hoping to be married someday, if it's God's will for you, then keep looking for that person who loves Jesus more than they love you. And if the, the Christ follower that you want to marry is another race, then praise God because the gospel is for all peoples. That is the message of the New Testament. <laughs> That's the message of Paul. That's the it's, it's the message of Acts. Um, let's keep reading here. Verses 18 to 24 say, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So Peter's rebuke here of Simon the Magician is pretty long, and at first glance, it looks pretty merciless. Um, 
What exactly did Simon do to deserve such a strong rebuke? Well, we know from the context here that Simon had long been a man intrigued with power. Not only the supernatural power that enabled him to practice sorcery and witchcraft, but also the power of influence that resulted from his magical power. And, and when Simon the magician seized, I mean, keep in mind that Samaritans, what, they gave him a title, right? They were worshiping him. They were worshiping this guy. They gave him, this is, he is great with a capital G. He's God. This is what this guy is coming out of. This is raw, right? This is raw Simon. This is his life, and now he's uh, confessed faith in Christ. And now Simon sees the power that Peter and John have, and he's chomping at the bit to get a piece of that, Right? He, uh, he wants it so bad that he offers to pay Peter and John for it, which was a common practice in the ancient world. Magicians would pay one another for tricks. And, and he wants them to show him how to do this Holy Spirit magic trick or this, this Holy Spirit sorcery. I got to get a piece of that. And uh, essentially, he wants God's power so that he can be powerful. He wants the power of God so that people will worship him. And oh yeah, Jesus too. And it appears that Simon was more amazed by the miracles that Philip and John and Peter did than he was amazed by Jesus, who's who's the savior and the subject of their gospel and of our gospel. And Peter, the apostle, sniffs this out real fast. As we see, he tells Simon the magician that he hopes that his money, he essentially says this is the best way to translate, I mean, this is R.C. Sproul, this is how he says it. <laughs> he says, I hope your money goes to hell with you. That it's a, it's, it's a kind of a curse in a sense. Peter tells Simon that he has no part in receiving the Holy Spirit because his heart is not right before God. And Simon's motives for wanting Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're all messed up. And at this point, this is the interesting thing. It's like, is Peter being too hard on this guy? I mean, uh, is this the right way to win a guy to Christ, right? You're thinking all this. Well, at this point, Peter is actually acting mercifully towards Simon because think about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They did a similar thing, lying to the leaders in the early church, corruption in their hearts. God dropped them dead right then and there. But instead of hoping that God would kill Simon right then and there uh, for their, uh, like he had Ananias and Sapphira for their corruption, Peter here gives Simon another chance. He tells Simon, repent of your wickedness. Uh, he, he tells him to confess his sinfulness to God so that God might forgive him. And uh, at this point, most commentators argue that uh, Simon the magician uh, had believed in Jesus and been baptized, but Simon was not a true believer. And uh, they reasoned that it would not make sense for Simon to be, a tr- to be truly saved by the Lord, and then for Peter now to come and tell Simon that he has no part in the Holy Spirit. What would make sense, though, and what we see happen with different people throughout Scripture, is that Simon believed in Jesus in a way that did not save him. Uh, There are lots of people who believe that Jesus is God. There are lots of people that believe that Jesus even died and that he even rose 
uh, from the dead for sinners. The Bible says that even demons believe that. But demons aren't saved. But believing that Jesus is God is different than trusting in Jesus for salvation. You can know that Jesus died on the cross, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is who you're trusting in to reconcile you to God. And this is why, if you think back in John 2, even though many people confess faith in Jesus, it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And this is why Jesus gave us the parable about the seeds and the different types of soils. Some of the soils appeared to have truly embraced the seed of the gospel in a saving way. However, after a little while, they revealed that they hadn't truly embraced the gospel in a saving way since they were drawn away by Satan and money and the temptations of this world. What makes you a Christian is not that you merely confess with your mouth that Jesus is God or even that you know that Jesus is God. What makes you a Christian is that you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. You have turned away, this is what repenting means, you've turned away from trusting in everything else to save you and now you trust in Jesus alone to save you. Now, Let's learn from Simon the Magician's sin here and draw out three applications for us, okay? First, we must occasionally examine our own hearts and ask, do I want Jesus or do I want what Jesus can do for me? Do I want Jesus or do I want what Jesus can give to me? Do do I really want Jesus, or do I really want Jesus' toys? It appears that Simon the Magician wasn't so concerned with having Jesus. What Simon really wanted was his toys. He wanted Jesus' power. He wanted the Holy Spirit that came with Jesus. And he wanted it for himself so that others would make much of him and not make much of Jesus. Wanting Jesus' stuff more than wanting Jesus is a temptation that uh, all of us have to be on guard uh, for, whether we're brand new Christians or whether we've been Christians for a long time. This could happen very subtly to us. Maybe, maybe you love, it's appealing to you, like the idea of being known for being smart about spiritual things. The Bible, you like people kind of put, you know, they, they think of you as a theologian. Maybe you're, maybe you're far more interested in the trivia of the Bible than you are interested in being transformed into the likeness of the God of the Bible. Or maybe it's appealing to you to be known as a prayer warrior or for being gifted at prayer. Or, or maybe you want to be known as a successful Christian musician or artist or author. And of course you love God, but what really drives you deeply is a desire for fame and recognition. Maybe you love to serve the Lord, but you tend to serve the Lord on your terms. And when it actually comes to being confronted and changed by God's word, that's a lot harder for you. And, 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 and you run the other way. Or, or maybe... Maybe more than anything, 
You want to have all the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit to validate your salvation, to give you confidence in your faith. Maybe that is more important to you. And I'm not saying this is happening consciously to you. I'm saying subconsciously we have to be careful of this. Maybe that is more important to you than trusting in who Jesus already is for you and what he's already done for you in the cross and in his resurrection. One thing that can happen for Christians who've been following Jesus for a long time is they get bored with the gospel. And you go look for a deeper truth. There's got to be a deeper branch of Christianity that's really true. There's got to be some, there's got to be something deeper. It's like, but I think the message of the New Testament, the message of Jesus is there's not a magic, secret sect of Christianity that's going to bring you closer to God. What you need is Jesus Christ here and now. That, that's what we need. Um, or maybe in reality you don't feel anything for Jesus. Maybe for you, you just want to jump through the right hoops so that you don't have to go to hell. Well, we're all faced by temptations like these. Um, and so we, it, it is very important for us to evaluate our motives. Um, and, and to ask ourselves, is Jesus enough for me? Like I'm wrestling with this. This is worrying me. This is on my mind. This is what I think needs to happen with my family and my future. This, what we need to ask really is, is Jesus enough for me? Am I satisfied with knowing Jesus crucified, resurrected, and reigning in heaven? Is, is you know, I don't know. We, none of us, you know, know exactly the paths that God is, has for us for the rest of our lives. The question is, whatever path I take is becoming holy like Jesus what I want, no matter which path I take. Because I want to be like him because that glorifies him, and that frees me, and that helps me to live the way he created me to live. Do I want Jesus, or do I just want his toys? These are difficult questions. Those aren't easy questions to ask. Those are difficult questions. Those are questions, though, as we, as we ask those questions and as we open the Bible and come to know Jesus more, that's going to sharpen us. If we ask the Holy Spirit to help us do that, that's going to sharpen us. That's going to help us learn to live and think and act and talk in a way that honors Jesus. And this is the great thing. As we do that, of course, every day we are going to identify flaws in ourselves. Of course. Thankfully, what is the gospel about? The grace of God. When we identify impure motives and desires in our hearts, we can confess them to Jesus wherever we're at. And he says that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Wow. That's, you don't get that anywhere else but in Jesus. Only Jesus can purify you from all unrighteousness and all the unrighteous things we've done. The second application we can learn from Simon the Magician's sin is that the Holy Spirit, so remember there's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is sovereign over us. We are not sovereign over him. As, as awesome as it is, as thankful we should be that the Holy Spirit makes people born again, he, he takes out their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. Uh, as thankful as we are that he lives inside Christians, that he serves us, he's our helper who helps us pray, he helps us grow in godliness. Even though all those things are awesome, we must never treat the Holy Spirit like a superpower that we have that we can command whenever we want to do whatever we want. Yes, praise God, the Holy Spirit responds to prayer. Yes, the Holy Spirit can and does move in amazing ways in our lives, but he does so according to his timing, according to his will, which may or may not be in alignment with our timing and our will. In John 3, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He, he goes wherever he wants to go. He goes whenever he wants to go there. And you never know when he's going to show up or when he's going to leave. But what we can do to pursue the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is, is to seek to live our lives in alignment with the Holy Spirit the way he tells us to in his word, the Bible. That's, the, that's what God wants for us. You know, if I could sit down and talk to the Holy Spirit, say, what do you want from me? He would say, I already told you, read the Bible. That's what he would say. If you want to walk in step with the Spirit, read the Spirit's word. And also, um, we recognize that when the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, again, it's a gift of grace, okay? We can't make him work in our lives. We can't pay him to work in our lives. Instead, what we do is this. We fall down flat on our face. We humble ourselves before the holy God of the universe and we ask him for more grace. That's it. That's our hope. Uh, and we ask him to move with power in our lives. We ask him to move in the lives of others. And he does work in response to our prayers because prayers are a means which he has ordained and he answers them in alignment with his wisdom and his will for us. And a third application here is that God and his gifts cannot be bought. God and his gifts cannot be bought. Again, this is where the temptation to do good works in order to manipulate God shows up in our lives. But God's goodness toward us is entirely due to his grace and not due to our righteousness. We've got to get that. It's due to his grace and not our righteousness. Our righteousness. We cannot do anything to earn God's grace. We cannot do anything to maintain God's grace. We cannot do anything to prolong God's grace. We simply trust God that in Christ Jesus, we have all the grace and all the help that we'll ever need now and for all eternity. That's why the gospel is a big deal. It's the promise of God's grace forever for us. Now, over the past 2,000 years of Christianity, many people, sadly, have, have followed in Simon the Magician's footsteps. And people have preached that God's grace can be bought. That uh, you can buy God's grace either with your money or with good works. And people have preached that 
Salvation from suffering after this life and salvation from hell after this life can be purchased or earned by you. And in fact, it was this very issue that triggered the start of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. When, when we Protestants broke away from Roman Catholicism. It's a great book I recommend. If you're interested in church history, it's called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. I think it's the best book on church history out there. But this is what he writes about this period of Christian history. The sale, in 1500s, the sale of indulgences introduced during the Crusades remained a favorite source of income for the Pope. In exchange for a good work, frequently a contribution to a worthy cause or a pilgrimage to a shrine, the Roman Catholic Church offered the sinner exemption from his acts of penance by drawing upon its treasury of merits. Some of you have heard of that. This consisted of the grace accumulated by Christ's sacrifice on the cross plus the meritorious deeds of the saints. All too often, zealous preachers of indulgences made them appear to be a sort of magic, as though a good deed, especially a contribution, automatically got its reward, regardless of the condition of the doer's soul. Sorrow for sin was completely and conveniently overlooked, and that troubled Martin Luther deeply, who was, a, who was one of the all-star priests of the Roman Catholic Church at that point. Armed with his newfound understanding of faith, Luther began to criticize the theology of the indulgences in his sermons. And his displeasure increased noticeably during 1517 when the Dominican John Tetzel was preaching throughout much of Germany on behalf of a papal fundraising campaign to complete the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. In exchange for a contribution, Tetzel boasted he would provide donors with an indulgence that would even apply beyond the grave and free souls from purgatory. Quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, went his jingle, the soul from purgatory springs. That was the handy little saying. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so the Pope and the Catholic Church paid for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome by convincing poor people that if they gave their money to the Catholic Church, then they wouldn't have to suffer so long in a place called purgatory, which is not in the scriptures. Not only is the selling of indulgences heretical and non-biblical teaching, it's also unethical and it's immoral. And sadly, the buying and selling of indulgences in the Catholic Church continues to this day without apologies. Um, a recent indulgence that dumbfounded me the most uh, was offered by the Pope in 2013. I, I want to watch a short, short video about it, if it works.
So to reduce your time of suffering after this life, follow the Pope's Twitter feed live. That is the promise. And millions and millions, more billions of people believe this and trust in this. It is not the message of the New Testament. God's grace cannot be bought. Salvation from sin and hell cannot be got, bought either by money or by following Twitter. God's gifts and blessings on earth in heaven, uh, on earth and in heaven can't be worked for. Um, and in addition to this, in addition to the, to the selling of indulgences by the Pope, other people have also made a lot of money by accepting payment for something as simple as prayer requests. Uh, I found this interesting, a story that came out of Seattle just a couple of years ago. It's another short video if you have that. So this idea of, of, of selling salvation, selling the gifts of God, um, is not in any way out of the ordinary of what we see in certain spheres of, I don't know what you call it, it's not Christianity, but self-proclaimed Christians. Um, and obviously in the, the health and wealth gospel that is preached um, by many televangelists and throughout the world, but again, the message here, you guys, is uh, we can't get right. It might feel like, oh, sweet, I sign a check. That's all I have to do to get right with God. And what that does is uh, it, it, um, it is such a rude, uh, it is such a rude idea, such a disrespectful notion that the holy God of the universe owes you something because you wrote him a check. It says that God isn't that holy. It says that he is attainable by me. He is attainable by my works. I don't need his grace. The truth is, all, all we have to hope in is God's grace. And he offers us his grace in Jesus Christ. That uh, Jesus is more than enough for us. That he paid it all for us when he died on the cross that Jesus declared us righteous 
and reconciled to God through his resurrection. That Jesus is our high priest. He's our one mediator. We must never look to any other thing or person or help to get us right with God. Jesus is more than enough for you. When you're on your deathbed, you don't need to make a $10 million contribution to Cedar Home Baptist Church hoping that that's going to get you in good place with God who you're about to meet. What you need to do is trust in Jesus right then and there. Doesn't that fill you with joy? When I think about that, that makes me joyful. That, that, that it fills me with a love for my Savior, for Jesus Christ, because it was grace. It was not an obligation that he did, that he saved us. That he finished the work of saving you, that he invites you into this. He invites you to know him and to love him and to enjoy his grace forever. How great is the grace of God. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. And hopefully Simon the magician did repent from his old ways. Hopefully he did truly turn to Jesus for salvation. We don't know, it doesn't say. But we do know that when Peter and John began their journey back to Jerusalem, many of those Samaritans were now believers uh, and they now had the Holy Spirit living inside them and securing their salvation. In verse 25 here it says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so just as Philip had done, Peter and John now preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans on their way back to Jerusalem. These villages, keep in mind, which not long ago, they went out of their way to avoid because they didn't want to be defiled by these people. And now they're like, we've got to hit that village. Those people need to hear about Jesus. The Samaritans were no longer their enemies they were now potential brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and I pray that God would help us to look at non-believers in our lives the same way. Not as enemies, but as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Potential recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And just like in this morning's passage, Jesus is growing his kingdom on earth today. He's doing it the same way. He's using ordinary, spirit-filled Christians like you to love their neighbors, and to tell them the good news of Jesus. We do not share a gospel of salvation by works or by riches. We share a gospel of God's grace alone that we receive through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. This is the gospel of grace. Let's thank God for it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of you. We thank you for the gift of of your death on the cross for us, God, which alone can deal with our past, which alone can put away our fear of death, which alone can get rid of an, our, our real guilt in the eyes of a holy God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit, for your love for us. Thank you for um, doing all the work for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would... Use your gospel message, this great news, Lord, to make people born again, to trust in you, Jesus, that all their toys, all their riches, they don't take any of it with them, and they don't know when they're leaving this place. None of us do. But we thank you, God, that even if you take our lives today, those of us in Christ are secure. Because, Holy Spirit, you indwell us, you're securing our salvation for us, and we are as secure as the blood of Jesus on the cross is eternally effective. 
And there's nothing more effective or sacred in the whole universe than the blood of God. Thank you, God, for giving that to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.